Chapter thirty one of the Mayor of Casterbridge. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Mayor of Casterbridge by Thomas Hardy. Chapter thirty one. The retort of the Fermity woman before the magistrates had spread, and in four and twenty hours there was not a person in Casterbridge who remained unacquainted with the story of Henchard's mad freak at Waden Pryor's fair long years before. The amends he had made in after-life were lost sight of in the dramatic glare of the original act. Had the incident been well known of old and always, it might by this time have grown to be lightly regarded as the rather tall wild oat, but well-nigh the single one, of a young man with whom the steady and mature, if somewhat headstrong, burgher of to-day had scarcely a point in common. But the act having lain as dead and buried ever since, the interspace of years was unperceived, and the black spot of his youth wore the aspect of a recent crime. Small as the police court incident had been in itself, it formed the edge or turn in the incline of Henchard's fortunes. On that day, almost at that minute, he passed the ridge of prosperity and honour, and began to descend rapidly on the other side. It was strange how soon he sank in esteem. Socially he had received a startling fillip downwards, and having already lost commercial buoyancy from rash transactions, the velocity of his descent in both aspects became accelerated every hour. He now gazed more at the pavements and less at the house-fronts when he walked about, more at the feet and leggings of men, and less into the pupils of their eyes with the blazing regard which formerly had made them blink. New events combined to undo him. It had been a bad year for others besides himself, and the heavy failure of a debtor whom he had trusted generously completed the overthrow of his tottering credit. And now, in his desperation, he failed to preserve that strict correspondence between bulk and sample which is the soul of commerce in grain. For this one of his men was mainly to blame, that worthy in his great unwisdom having picked over the sample of an enormous quantity of second-rate corn which Henchard had in hand, and removed the pinched, blasted, and smutted grains in great numbers. The produce, if honestly offered, would have created no scandal, but the blunder of misrepresentation coming at such a moment dragged Henchard's name into the ditch. The details of his failure were of the ordinary kind. One day Elizabeth Jane was passing the King's Arms, when she saw people bustling in and out more than usual, where there was no market. A bystander informed her, with some surprise at her ignorance, that it was a meeting of the commissioners under Mr. Henchard's bankruptcy. She felt quite tearful, and when she heard that he was present in the hotel, she wished to go in and see him, but was advised not to intrude that day. The room in which debtor and creditors had assembled was a front one, and Henchard, looking out of the window, had caught sight of Elizabeth Jane through the wire blind. His examination had closed, and the creditors were leaving. The appearance of Elizabeth threw him into a reverie, till, turning his face from the window and towering above all the rest, he called their attention for a moment more. His countenance had somewhat changed from its flush of prosperity. The black hair and whiskers were the same as ever, but a film of ash was over the rest. "'Gentlemen,' he said, "'over and above the assets that we've been talking about, and that appear on the balance sheet, there be these.' It all belongs to ye as much as everything else I've got, and I don't wish to keep it from you, not I. 
Saying this he took his gold watch from his pocket and laid it on the table, then his purse, the yellow canvas money-bag such as was carried by all farmers and dealers, untying it and shaking the money out upon the table beside the watch. The latter he drew back quickly for an instant to remove the hair-guard made and given him by Lucetta. "'There, now you have all I've got in the world,' he said, "'and I wish for your sakes this more.' The creditors, farmers almost to a man, looked at the watch, and at the money, and into the street, when Farmer James Everdeen of Weatherbury spoke. "'No, no, Henchard,' he said warmly, "'we don't want that. "'Tis honourable in ye, but keep it. "'What do you say, neighbours? "'Do ye agree?' "'Eh, sure, we don't wish it at all,' said Grower, another creditor. "'Let him keep it, of course,' murmured another in the background, a silent, reserved young man named Boldwood, and the rest responded unanimously. "'Well,' said the senior commissioner, addressing Henchard, "'though the case is a desperate one, I am bound to admit that I have never met a debtor who behaved more fairly. I've proved the balance sheet to be as honestly made out as it could possibly be. We have no trouble. There have been no evasions and no concealments.' The rashness of dealing which led to this unhappy situation is obvious enough, but as far as I can see every attempt has been made to avoid wronging anybody. Henchard was more affected by this than he cared to let them perceive, and he turned aside to the window again. A general murmur of agreement followed the commissioner's words, and the meeting dispersed. When they were gone Henchard regarded the watch they had returned to him. "'Tisn't mine by rights,' he said to himself. "'Why the devil didn't they take it?' I don't want what don't belong to me. Moved by a recollection, he took the watch to the maker's just opposite, sold it there and then for what the tradesman offered, and went with the proceeds to one among the smaller of his creditors, a cottager of Durnover in straitened circumstances, to whom he handed the money. When everything was ticketed that Henchard had owned, and the auctions were in progress, there was quite a sympathetic reaction in the town, which till then for some time past had done nothing but condemn him. Now that Henchard's whole career was pictured distinctly to his neighbours, and they could see how admirably he had used his one talent of energy to create a position of affluence out of absolutely nothing, which was really all he could show when he came to the town as a journeyman hay-trusser, with his wimble and knife in his basket, they wondered and regretted his fall. Try as she might, Elizabeth could never meet with him. She believed in him still, though nobody else did and she wanted to be allowed to forgive him for his roughness to her, and to help him in his trouble. She wrote to him. He did not reply. She then went to his house, the great house she had lived in so happily for a time, with its front of dun brick, vitrified here and there, and its heavy sash-bars. But Henchard was to be found there no more. The ex-mayor had left the home of his prosperity, and gone into Jopp's cottage by the Priory Mill the sad purlieu to which he had wandered on the night of his discovery that she was not his daughter. Thither she went. Elizabeth thought it odd that he had fixed on this spot to retire to, but assumed that necessity had no choice. Trees which seemed old enough to have been planted by the friars still stood around, and the back hatch of the original mill yet formed a cascade which had raised its terrific roar for centuries. The cottage itself was built of old stones from the long-dismantled priory, scraps of tracery, moulded window-jams, and arch-labels being mixed in with the rubble of the walls. In this cottage he occupied a couple of rooms. Jopp, whom Henchard had employed, abused, cajoled, and dismissed by turns, being the householder. 
but even here her stepfather could not be seen. "'Not by his daughter?' pleaded Elizabeth. "'By nobody at present. That's his order,' she was informed. Afterwards she was passing by the corn-stores and hay-barns which had been the headquarters of his business. She knew that he ruled there no longer, but it was with amazement that she regarded the familiar gateway. A smear of decisive lead-coloured paint had been laid on to obliterate Henchard's name, though its letters dimly loomed through like ships in a fog. Over these in fresh white spread the name of Farfrae. Abel Whittle was edging his skeleton in at the wicket, and she said, "'Mr. Farfrae is master here?' "'Yes, Miss Henchett,' he said. "'Mr. Farfrae have bought the concern, and all of we work folk with it, and tis better for us than twas, though I shouldn't say that to you as a daughter-in-law. We work harder, but we bain't made a feared now. It was fear made my few poor hairs so thin. No busting out, no slamming of doors, no meddling with your eternal soul and all that.' and though tis a shilling a week less, I'm the richer man. For what's all the world if your mind is always in a larry, Miss Henchett? The intelligence was in a general sense true, and Henchard's stores, which had remained in a paralyzed condition during the settlement of his bankruptcy, were stirred into activity again when the new tenant had possession. Thenceforward the full sacks, looped with a shining chain, went scurrying up and down under the cat-head, Hairy arms were thrust out from the different doorways, and the grain was hauled in. Trusses of hay were tossed anew in and out of the barns, and the wimbles creaked, while the scales and steel-yards began to be busy where guesswork had formerly been the rule. End of chapter 31